Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. Get on inside the China shop. You've made it to another exciting episode. I'm shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing good. Excited about today's guest. Yes, today's guest. Folks, sit back, strap in. We've got none other than the CEO of Centerfin, Chiral Assiter. How are you doing today, Chiral? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Do you like your uh, your hype man? <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys are awesome. Did you get you pumped? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Cairo. It looks like you've uh, you had quite an interesting career. Uh, yeah, sure. Happy to. So I um, was actually born in the former Soviet Union and, and raised there. And we moved here uh, when I was uh, a kid, about nine years old, settled in, in uh, New York City, which is where I live today. I um, didn't know anything about finance whatsoever. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, and I went to pre-med originally in college. Around that time is uh, this kind of the late 90s. I discovered Mm -hmm. finance through the stock market, similar to kind of how I think lots of folks discovered the stock market over the last couple of years. In the late 90s, we had the first um, internet, um, you know, kind of, you know, what led to a bubble, but at the time it was just lots of really interesting new companies and kind of web 1.0 as it's referred to now. And so I uh, got very interested in the stock market, decided that that's what I wanted to do for my career. So pivoted to finance as a major, graduated undergrad and uh, was lucky enough to to get a job at Goldman Sachs out of undergrad, kind of snuck my way in the back door there through operations and then <laughs> made, made my way Made my way. It was a it was a tough year to recruit. It was you know 2000 recruiting when when the you know the internet bubble kind of burst. And so, oh but God. but but was lucky enough to to get a seat. Um, made my way eventually into the prime brokerage business, which is largely the business associated with uh, the hedge fund industry. Basically, you know, uh, running uh, the services and, and and managing the relationships of hedge fund clientele that Goldman Sachs had. I kind of noticed early on. I read a lot of the you know, when Gen- when Genius Failed books and Market Wizards books and got kind of obsessed with the hedge fund industry, um, you know, also noticed that all the smartest people seem to be starting hedge funds or going to work at hedge funds. And so figured, why not align myself with the hedge fund industry? So Goldman had, and to this day, still has one of the best franchises in that business. And, uh, and so, you know, spent the next, uh, you know, eight years uh, working in that business at Goldman. Eventually, one of my clients, a distressed credit hedge fund founded by also ex-Goldman guys, uh, hired me to come on in a uh, kind of a business development, marketing, investor relations capacity. So I spent the next five years there, was recruited into a handful of roles at other firms before I basically decided about, I guess, almost six years ago at this point to hang up my own shingle 
um, and work in an advisory capacity as a consultant advisor to the alternative investment management industry, which is, you know, includes hedge funds and others. Mm-hmm. And then about two years ago, decided to start what is now Centerfin. So put a team together and uh, started building right around COVID, believe it or not. And oh. uh, we went <laughs> we went live in uh, private beta at the beginning of this year and, you know, off to the races. All right. There's a lot to unpack in there. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. You said you initially went to school to be a doctor and then you pivoted to finance. How pissed was your mom at that decision? <laughs> oh, boy. Because uh, <laughs> I've noticed that people who put their kids through med school really want their kids to be doctors. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Growing up as a as a as a relatively uh, you know uh, you know poor Jewish immigrant, uh, there's very few professions that you know uh, kind of former uh, Soviet Union mothers and fathers want their sons to uh, to and, and daughters to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely, doctors and engineers. That's kind of the two professions that they knew, and uh, and so uh, yes, it was their dream for me to be a doctor. I figured out in the first semester of my pre-med kind of track, I was at NYU originally, that I hated it uh-huh. and I didn't want to do it. And at the same time, as I mentioned, I was discovering kind of the, the world of finance and Wall Street through the stock market and always had a, had a kind of a knack for numbers. So decided that I wanted to do that. I actually didn't tell my parents that I canceled all of my second uh, semester <laughs> no. electives. Uh, I canceled all of them and I took um, second semester pre-med classes and I took electives to try and figure out, you know, are there courses that I could take to to help me get closer to finance? So, yeah, they were they were pretty pissed once I eventually told them, but they were supportive nonetheless. Why do you think uh, why do you think the doctor is like the dream? So I, I can't speak to to other families, but I think for immigrant families in particular, uh, especially, you know, kind of Jewish families coming from the former Soviet Union. There were not a lot of professions that um, that were available to them in the former Soviet Union, and mm-hmm. the two kind of more prestigious professions were, uh, you know, being a doctor or being an engineer, and so that's kind of all they knew, really. So that was, you know, that's what they always thought. That's kind of what I thought. That's that's really interesting, though. I mean, nobody wants their kid to perform, uh, you know, stand-up comedy, but a, a good job at a good bank, you think they'd be all for that too. Yeah, they eventually came around to it. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, it took some convincing. All right, you said you snuck in the back door at Goldman Sachs. Can you uh, elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So I, when I decided to pivot to finance, I ended up making the decision to switch schools. I went from uh, undergrad at NYU to um, to another school that was local to me, Hofstra University on Long Island, which is where my parents uh, were living at the time. And um, even though I was graduating with a very good GPA and, and you know great coursework and all of that stuff, it was not a school that Wall Street actively recruited from. Mm-hmm. And so I banged my head against the wall. You know, I sent my resumes, and again, you know, this was 2000. So, you know, this is when you know the internet bubble burst, right. and so hiring you know froze at the banks, and you ne- you needed to you know you basically needed to get an offer. The year before, so I, I graduated in 2001. So in 2000, it was kind of when I was when when I was applying for jobs, and um, and so I sent my resume to pretty much every division of every Wall Street bank at the time, and I literally got no answers. I think I got like one rejection postcard from Morgan Stanley or something like that, Oof. 
and it was very discouraging. And so I, um, I was set up for kind of an informal meeting with a bond trader at Salomon Brothers at the time. And I remember meeting with this guy and he was, you know, relatively young, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. And he was running one of their mortgage desks. And, you know, he seemed like he was doing great. And, um, and so he had, he had, he had one piece of advice for me. He said, listen, he's like, he's like, I, I had, you know, kind of a similar background to you. I didn't come from maybe the right school to get into some of these, you know, really coveted roles on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. But I did get my way in the door in kind of operations at Solomon and work my way through the system until, you know, now I'm running this whole desk and, you know, doing great. And he said, he said, my advice to you would be find that, you know, find the best seat you can uh, in, you know, in the operations division, non, the, the non front office, as they call it, um, part of a bank. And, mm-hmm. and then, and then try to work your way through the system. So that's, that's exactly what I did. I kind of, I focused on Goldman, you know, I got, you know, an interview in, in their global operations program. And I was uh, one of two people hired from, from my school that year. When you say uh, the operations side, what exactly does that mean? So it's referred to often as um, the back office, right? So it's kind of handling all of the, um, the back end of transactions. Like bookkeeping kind of stuff? More like uh, settlement and yeah, there's some book, bookkeeping elements to it, but more like settlement of transactions. So for, uh-huh. for, for simple, you know, for, for a simple example, if a equity sales trader at Goldman does a trade with a hedge fund, you know, to buy some block of stock, that trade then needs to go through the confirmation process and then get settled. And there's a bunch of people, well, it hopefully is more automated today, but 20 years ago, there was a bunch of people that were involved in doing that. And so, so that's, that's what, and it was, it was largely referred to, um, it's basically kind of all the non-front office, uh, functions of a bank, of an investment bank. So across the street, um, that functionary was called the back office, which kind of always had like a somewhat of a negative connotation to it. Goldman was always a little bit more, uh, thoughtful about that. And they always referred to it as operations. Um, later in my career, when I was already kind of on the buy side, they actually started to refer to it as the federation inside of Goldman. Uh, <laughs> so it was like, you know, it was basically, it was just given a lot more importance uh, at the bank in terms of the functions and, and the leadership there. It's funny, but it's some things that get looked down upon, but they're absolutely integral to the operations. Huge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, so what what uh, what classes did you actually take to kind of set you up for this? That's one thing I've always been curious in is like what kind of education like can you actively pursue rather than just trying to do it all and learn the hard way? So uh, I took all of the finance classes, you know, finance 101 to whatever number it was. I learned, you know, all the basics of time value of money and kind of modeling out cash flows and um, macroeconomics, microeconomics. But frankly, what I really, you know, the way I really learned uh, was by, you know, having, you know, as I mentioned, I discovered the stock market at college. Mm-hmm. You know, I borrowed some money from my dad. I opened up an E-Trade account, which at the time is probably the equivalent of a, of a Robinhood today. It was new. It was online. It was cheap. And you can execute, you know, trades fast. And I learned that way. I learned by, you know, you know learning about companies, learning how things trade. Lots of really bad lessons. I mean, good lessons in, in experience in bad ways, right? Um, where 
you know, when the market was going all in one direction, everything was great. When the market fell apart, lost a lot of money, learned some lessons along the way. So it was, uh, I think, th- I think those were important learnings for me alongside the, the college work, but frankly, maybe more important. And then, um, and then reading lots of books, you know, as I mentioned, even in college, I think before Goldman, I, I read kind of any book I can get my hands on that talked about uh, the markets, um, you know, finance, uh, you know, some of the stories about collapsed hedge funds like long-term capital management. There's a you know famous book that I don't know if you guys have read called When Genius Fails. That was a that was a really interesting book for me hmm. uh, to read. And then uh, there was the When Genius Fails. When Genius Failed. Yeah, it's when about the collapse failed. of long-term capital management in the late '90s. Interesting. There was a bunch of Market Wizards books which which profiled all of the kind of old-school hedge fund managers. You know, I read all of those uh, at the time as well. And you learn a lot from from that as well. Uh, what was your favorite then? Which book do you think like taught you the most? You know, I think all the all the Market Wizards books were really good because you just get to learn from these very successful investors. And you get to learn, you know, they, they basically kind of explain their perspective and how they go about things and how they look at the world, how they, you know, try to obviously make money, which is what hedge funds um, are designed to do. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I've always really enjoyed learning from people, uh, you know, successful people. And this was just a way to do it, um, you know, that was just available to anybody that wanted to to read those books. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as hedge funds go, it seems like they have kind of a spotty track record at best. Uh, like, it seems like a lot of them don't really, like, they'll do well for a while, and then they'll just absolutely implode. Uh, why do you think the, that some of them seem to struggle so much? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I and I totally agree with your perspective, and I think that that has become a very uh, common perspective out there, and it's 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 rightfully you know kind of a reputation rightfully deserved, I think, um, and I think it's partially due to a couple of factors. So, the hedge fund industry started in the you know I think it was like in the '60s or '70s. It was originally a very small cottage industry where it was largely kind of macroeconomic. Uh, strategies. So if you if you think about you know kind of the old school hedge fund managers like uh, Lewis Bacon who ran more capital for a long time, um, you know it, it, a lot of those hedge funds of that era were kind of macroeconomic hedge funds. And by macroeconomic uh, or global macro as they're referred to, uh, it means that they're largely looking at the world at a very high level uh, top down, and so they're trying to see. Um, you know, what's, what's happening, uh, predict certain big trends and then get ahead of mm-hmm. them by positioning their, their fund to take advantage of those trends. And so macro was a very, very common, very profitable strategy. Paul Tudor Jones is another great example of, a you know, one of the greats of macro investing, uh, Stanley mm-hmm. Druckenmiller of Duquesne, you know, probably, you know, you know, top, you know, top five also, um, of, of global macro investing. And, um, and, and so, and, and that, that time period in the seventies, eighties, nineties was very conducive to that type of strategy because there was just a lot of stuff going on globally. You know, we were kind of in the first process of globalization. So lots of, um, you know, currencies trading versus each other were changing their, um, their relation to each other, uh, pretty massively based on what was going on from a globalization perspective. Um, mm-hmm. lots of opportunities to trade interest rates globally. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff to do in gold macro. And then, um, and then hedge funds 
kind of earned their stripes, I would say, in the internet bubble, because a lot of them were positioned to actually weather that storm relatively well. Can you explain what you mean by, um, by the dilution? Yeah, sorry. So, so uh, you know, the more capital that flows into the industry, you know, effectively, the worse the um, overall prospective returns get. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of simple math. If there's, you know, an opportunity to extract value out of the market that is limited, and you have 10 participants trying to extract that value for their funds and for their clients, investors, um, and all of a sudden you grow to 100 funds trying to do the same thing, well, the, you know, the probability that, you know, all of them are going to be able to extract that value is, is much lower. And also the uh, average, uh, you know, extraction of value that each fund is going to get is going to be lower. Uh, okay. So you get a hundred funds instead of 10. Now maybe only 10 are going to make money and the other rest are going to be clawed to break even or taking losses. Yeah. Or, you know, or if the profits before were, you know, were, were substantial, you know, it, it might average out to be something that's, you know, uh, pretty pedestrian. Oh, that's interesting. It's an interesting way to look at it. So what did, when you walked away from the hedge funds, like what was your take? Like, how did you feel about them when you left? So I got a little bit, um, so, you know, so uh, as I mentioned before, kind of post uh, global financial crisis is when I actually joined my first hedge fund, uh, which was a client of mine at Goldman. And I, the, at the time, the industry uh, sentiment was very bearish. Uh, you know, people, you know, right. again, hedge funds lost money in 2008. They weren't really supposed to lose money. Investors were saying that's the death of hedge funds. But my personal view, you know, having sat inside Goldman and watched some of the flows and talking to a lot of institutional investors was that we were just setting up for the next round of institutional adoption via the, the pension community. And uh, the pensions mm -hmm. had gone into the financial crisis, very under allocated hedge funds, which are really, you know, in their in most of those portfolios, they're referred to or, or used as diversifiers. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of supposed to be absolute return focused, less correlated to overall risk assets. And, uh, and the pension community was was grossly under allocated to hedge funds. And so I kind of saw that they were going to be the next wave of growth for hedge funds. But, and it, you know, that brought even more capital to the industry. So returns became even more muted. And so at some point, I, you know, I just kind of felt like the industry was, you know, consolidating slash, you know, going into some sort of secular decline. And I wanted to, mm -hmm. I wanted to take a step back and, and take myself out of it. Um, you know, still kind of have my, my toe in, in the water and participate and keep in touch with all of my relationships. But, um, but that was kind of what led me to do that in, in 2016. Why would pensions, why would they want to be invested in hedge funds? Uh, that was one of the things that surprised me with the whole like meme stock mania was the, the hedge fund managers saying that retail's hurting the pensions and hurting school teachers. Like, why is a school teacher investing with a hedge fund? It's a good question. So, um, there's an article about uh, about this in uh, in the Wall Street Journal actually this morning about pension funds kind of taking on more risk in order to generate uh, their their returns that they need to meet their obligations. So going into the financial crisis, um, you know, a lot of pension funds were not actively allocating to what's broadly categorized as alternative investment strategies, and so those are strategies mm -hmm. that are you know, largely something slightly different than just, you know, kind of plain vanilla stocks and bonds um, via either ETFs or mutual funds. It doesn't really matter, but those are kind of the asset classes largely that hedge funds, uh, that pension funds were allocated to. 
hedge funds, venture mm-hmm. capital, private equity are all in kind of broad bucket alternative investment strategies. And, and the idea there is that, you know, the managers of those funds, hedge funds, private equity firms, venture capital firms are using a strategy um, that is not um, that, that it's slightly different, that takes a different take on um, you know, the public, generally the public market. So hedge funds were, um, by the pension community, um, considered a diversifier strategy. And so because hedge funds were not uh-huh. tied to be just long stocks, they can be long short, they can be short only, um, they can be in various different sectors. Um, they were, um, you know, taken, taken collectively, a portfolio of hedge funds, um, should actually increase the quality of the portfolio return over over you know a long period of time, and that's why and that makes sense. Yeah, and so the, so the consultants kind of drove pension funds into the hedge funds. You know, in my opinion at the wrong time. You know, we were you know kind of <laughs> post financial crisis. We were living in this you know very easy monetary environment that the Federal Reserve created as a response mm-hmm. to the financial crisis, and. You know, what that meant, this is obviously with the benefit of hindsight, but some of this was, was already obvious. But what that meant was that it was just going to be very difficult to generate returns on an active basis. You know, basically, lots of money into the system, floated all boats, uh, and it kind of, you know, reached a crescendo in, in 2020 with COVID. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> now that the, the Fed is finally starting to unwind that balance sheet, like what do you see as uh, the future of the market being? So it's, it's super interesting. It's a uh, internal topic of conversation for my team. It's something I talk to, you know, I'm still, you know, very close with a lot of the hedge fund community. I, I talk to folk all the time about this. You know, we potentially have entered a new kind of regime, um, you know, in, in, you know, 2022, late 2021 which is going to be very, very different mm-hmm. than the prior decade plus, where, you know, the Federal Reserve and central banks globally, you know, they generally, well, let's speak to the Federal Reserve, they have two mandates, right? They have price stability, which means that mm-hmm. inflation uh, slash deflation is somewhat controlled. Um, and 2% is some arbitrary number that they use that they feel like is, is a good number for inflation. And then uh, unemployment, mm-hmm. right? And so unemployment is, is very, very low, as, as I'm sure you guys are aware. But inflation all of a sudden got out of control uh, in, in kind of 2021, now into 2022. It's not really showing signs of abating. And so the Federal Reserve has no choice but to fight inflation, right? What that means is tightening financial conditions, raising interest rates, um, and that's really bad for stocks and really bad for bonds. Mm-hmm. And so um, so it's a, it's, it's a really tough environment. I mean, the, the toughest job in the world is, you know, is, is at the hands of the Federal Reserve. The second toughest job is, you know, anybody who's professionally managing money in this environment is, is it's very difficult. Right. It's even tougher for Powell now that he can't trade stocks anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fair it's a fair point because I have this conversation, you know, with, with my team and with others in the in the in the industry where, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve is made up of, you know, fairly well to do. Uh, people that own lots of stocks and, and what, what their policy response, uh, has been and, you know, looks like it's going to continue to be at least for the foreseeable future is really bad for stocks. And, you know, we've seen a 20% correction, but that's actually not, that's not that painful. Um, you know, it could, it could potentially get a lot worse. Where do you think the bottom's going to be? Um, I couldn't tell you. And, and I think anybody who tells you, you know, (laughs) okay, let me rephrase that. What would you need to see to call a bottom to say that the bottom is in? 
You know, I, I, I'll answer it in a little bit of a different way. If tomorrow Jay Powell came out and said, you know what, guys, um, we actually think this inflation thing is, is fine and it'll take care of itself. And we're just going to go back to what we were doing in the prior you know, decade. <laughs> then every, everything's yeah. going to rally. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just not likely that that's going to happen. So what we really what we're paying attention to and what we're talking to folks about and, and smarter than us is we are really focused on what's what's happening with the data that's coming out as it relates to mm -hmm. inflation and the economy, because now it's a balancing act, right? Because, you know, the economy is already slowing. We're seeing that in the data. Uh, the market usually is a leading indicator, right? So the market started to sell off, you know, really in late 2021. Some parts of the market start to sell off in early 2021. And, um, right. and so it's a leading indicator. So it's been, it's been showing us that there is, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, there, there, there's some, there's, there's a tough period of time ahead. And at, and at first it's been focused on inflation, you know, to date it's been focused on inflation. You know, there is some evidence just over the last couple of weeks here that the market is now starting to focus on growth and or lack thereof or slowing growth um, as its focus. And what that just means is that there's going to be rotation within the market. Right. So we've seen lots of rotation from, you know, growth stocks, yeah. the value stocks, you know, energy being the biggest one. Um, and now we saw, you know, just over the last couple of weeks, saw another rotation. And so we, we might just see some of this choppiness um, until we, we have more clarity around, you know, what does the inflation picture looks like? Um, what does the growth or recession picture look like? And, you know, mm -hmm. some more clarity around what the Fed is actually going to do. There, there are lots of folks out there who think that the Fed and global uh, central banks are just going to have to continue to hike. They have no choice, which will mean that, you know, stocks have a long way to go down. Um, and then there's some folks that think that the Fed will, you know, the Fed is going to blink and uh, and they're just going to, you know, stop tightening. And that will be a relief for risk assets, broadly speaking. But you have to you have to pay attention. It's not it's not going to be the same playbook as the last decade plus. Do you think the uh, midterm elections will have any effect on that Fed policy? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the Fed is not supposed to be a political organization. <laughs> not supposed to be. Not supposed to be. Lots of lots of other, you know, uh, government organizations are not supposed to be political, but they are. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, midterms are important and, um, you know, and we'll see. I mean, listen, the, 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 the crazy, <laughs> the crazy thing, at least for me, is you know, you're seeing some of these responses in Europe and in some states in, in the U.S., like California, where, you know, in order to help people deal with inflation, you know, they're, they're promoting stimulus programs, right? They're pro promoting checks yeah. to help pay for the rising cost of food and gas. And the problem with that is, is that it, it's well-intentioned, but the mm -hmm. it's also what got us here. And so... Um, and so I think that, you know, we, we have this, it's a, it's a really precarious situation because we have, we're at, at a point in time where, you know, what really pushed, at least in our opinion, really pushed inflation over the line and, and made it a real problem was not the monetary policy response of the Federal Reserve to the, you know, to COVID. Um, that was part of it. But really, I think what pushed it over the line was the, the fiscal stimulus, right? So, you know, stimmy checks, as they're referred to in the press, right? Like, Oh really? Um, yeah, I mean that just gave that just gave that's like that's like helicopter money, right? That's just government printing money and putting in your bank account, and that that helps people, you know, be able to you know buy things that they previously weren't able to buy. 
Um, and so some of it feeds into speculation, some of it feeds into prices of, of goods and services. And so, um, so, so, so responding to inflation by doing the same thing is a little crazy, but that seems to be where at least some governments are talking about and doing. So you don't think the supply chain is the main driver? It's all part of it. It's all related, right? The supply chain, the supply chain issues, um, you know, they're actually abating, at least as far as we can tell. But, yep. but the supply yep. chain issues were also a, you know, effectively a uh, unintended consequence of shutting down the global economy for COVID and then restarting it again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, right. you know, it's such a complex system that you can't just shut everything down and restart it and not expect there to be hiccups along the way. And uh, I'll tell you on the East Coast here, I was just, I was at the beach over the weekend and there is, there's still, you know, in the distance, there are, you know, a big long line of ships um, that are still standing there waiting to offload their, their goods. Um, so it's, wow. it's, while the data is showing that it's abating, it's, it's not gone and it's not going to be gone, you know, any, anytime soon, but it's not the main, uh, main factor that's driving inflation today. It's actually inflation seems to be transitioning from goods inflation to services inflation. And, um, uh-huh. but you know, you have to monitor it and see how it goes. Super interesting. Thanks for your take on some of that stuff. Mm. Love hearing uh, people who actually studied stuff <laughs> rather than Dan and I just postulating. Hey, I took some <laughs> economics courses. You did more than I did. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell us, let's let's uh, start talking about the uh, Centerfin because it looks like your experiences from your 20 years in the financial services kind of helped push you to, to starting this. I'm kind of curious, you know, what was the reason why? Yeah, it was, um, you know how they say, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. I think it was a little bit of that for mm-hmm. us. I, you know, my whole career, I've had friends and family come to me asking for advice, you know, what to do with their 401k, their retirement assets, their you know, taxable assets. And I frankly just never had a good answer for them historically because, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, most options that are available to individuals are not great. They're, they're, you know, poor quality investment options. They're way overpriced. Um, and, and I just never had a good response. My best response would be kind of what, you know, a lot of people have, have adopted, which is, you know, just buy some low fee ETS from Vanguard or, or, you know, something similar and, uh, and just don't touch it. Um, but, you know, frankly speaking, going back to my point about kind of regime change and whether or not we're in a different environment than we, we have been over the last decade or so. That might not necessarily work uh, over the next decade, and so um, and so one of the you know so so take take another step back. So so basically, um, Centerfind was um, originally conceived as the idea to bring the institutional quality investment approach that I learned from you know lots of the institutional allocators that I covered that invested in hedge funds and other alternative investment strategies and try to replicate that approach Mm -hmm. and bring it to individuals. That was kind of the very high level idea. Um, That doesn't just mean, you know, doing exactly what those firms do, but bringing that approach where, you know, you start with kind of a broad top-down asset allocation uh, thought process that that informs, you know, what assets you want to be invested in and uh, what assets you don't want to be invested in. And within those asset classes, you know, maybe potentially in the equities um, space sectors that you might want to avoid or, or overweight to, and then potentially partnering mm-hmm. with alternative investment firms in various categories to increase the quality of the overall return. All right, so it's that diversification purpose that I that I referred to originally, and so um, 
so that's kind of that's that's what that's what we're doing with Centerfin, and um, the and 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 frankly, it, it's not something that exists in the market. There's lots of you know you'll see lots of stuff like you know there's like um, there's a startup that just focuses on art as an investment. Um, art might be a great investment. You know, art is also you know potentially on the very speculative end of like this you know, blow off top that we saw in risk assets in, in the last, you know, two years or so. So, um, so I would say, you know, that's not something we would recommend. Um, but would we recommend, you know, distressed debt as a, as a, as an area? Yes. That's something that we think is super interesting. Uh, would we recommend global macro? We think that's super interesting for the first time, you know, since, you know, pre financial crisis. So, um, so those are kind of areas that we, uh, we focus on that we think are interesting. They're not going to always be interesting, but, you know, given our experience and our relationships, um, this is stuff that we can, you know, we can actually, uh, I think, prudently diligence and ascertain and, and design in client portfolios and, and do it with using technology with scale. So, um, so that's, that's, that's the gist of Centerfin. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's, it at a high level. One of the, I was reading through some of the, the stuff on your website and under the, the article where you talked about why you started the Centerfin, there was a, a blurb in here about market index funds and ETFs dominating market inflows. And because they're growing their market share, there's a disparity in company valuations, a lack of corporate governance setting the stage for the next financial cal- calamity. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate you you reading the stuff. It's um, we, we try to put everything you know everything we do on paper and and you know provide clarity and transparency for for our clients and mm-hmm. for you know prospective clients and and you know we're not going to be right a hundred percent of the time, but at least we're going to have a track record of you know our our point of view at any given point in time. Um, as it relates to passive funds, right. I think that the amount of dollars that have flown into passive funds managed by Vanguard and BlackRock, um, you know, amongst others, has been so huge that at some point in 20, I think it was 2018 or 2019, they overtook uh, the majority of, of, of the market, at least for stocks. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, more than half of all the stocks were owned by index funds. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so that's, that's pretty, and, and that's huge. I mean, that's like, um, you know, I think that ratio is up, you know, I, I forget the numbers, but it's, it's a big move, right? Because A, it's been working. B, um, it's been a popular strategy for individuals that don't want to pay high fees and, you know, and if it's working, why, why not do it? Um, but the, the potential unintended consequence of that is that these index funds, uh, there's nobody sitting there. Uh, making a decision on, you know, whether or not Coke and, you know, let's just use a simple example, but, you know, there's Coke and Pepsi. Should we invest in Coke or Pepsi? Mm-hmm. You know, is one potentially, you know, better operationally, has better margins, potentially more valuable? Nobody's making that decision, right? Coke and Pepsi have a weighting in the S&P 500. Coke and Pepsi have a weighting in a, in a consumer staples ETF. And every dollar mm-hmm. that goes into an S&P 500 ETF or a consumer staples ETF gets on a pro rata basis to that weighting of Coke and Pepsi gets plowed into Coke and Pepsi. And so, you know, so all these dollars go into these ETFs, those, into these uh, passive index ETFs, they get 
um, without any kind of thought and, you know, any, any consideration to the potential relative valuation discrepancies between different companies, they get plowed into these companies' stocks at the ratio that, um, that they are given in that index. And so, um, so, so, so basically it's kind of, you know, to go back to, you know, something I, I think I mentioned before, but kind of a lot of liquidity kind of flooding the market, right? It just, you know, so right. if you just look at it in that, in the, in the stock space, you're just, you're basically just flooding stocks with capital without any, uh, without any kind of discrimination between potential valuations. And so, um, you know, there might be a company that's, you know, better operated and should deserve a higher valuation than another company, but they're just getting capital at the same rate that their, their weight is in the index. And so that's what I mean by there's no real discrepancy in valuations. Nobody's sitting there and doing the work. I mean, there's, there are some active managers that are trying to do that, but because the passive uh, index funds now own more than half the market, that's kind of what's driving prices more so than, you know, right. somebody saying, Hey, I want to be short Coke versus Pepsi or whatnot. And so, so that's part of the reason that's, that's part of the problem in our, in our view is that it's kind of, you know, distorted a little bit, I guess is the word, uh, valuations, because, mm -hmm. you know, you're just, you're just kind of giving money to all companies at whatever their index weight is, regardless of, uh, the valuation that might be right or wrong. And corporate governance is a big problem, right? Because, and, and, you know, Carl Icahn is probably the, the loudest voice out there talking about this. Uh, he's a colorful character and I, 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 know. <laughs> I you have to admire the guy for, for, you know, he's, he's been at it for a long time, still at it. And, um, but he's talked about this, right? He's talked about the fact that, you know, BlackRock does not hold these corporations to account, right? Whereas his whole, Carl Icahn's whole thing is he's an activist investor. So he, you know, he sees, right. you know, companies, um, he sees stocks as companies, companies are run by people. Those people need to be held to account, right? They're, they're fiduciaries. They need right. to do the right thing for the shareholders, for the company, the shareholders, customers, but, you know, for, from his perspective, for the shareholders and BlackRock doesn't do that, right? BlackRock will just, you know, they might be the biggest owner of a certain company, but it's not like they're going in there and saying, Hey, you guys are doing something wrong. That's, that, that's a, you know, that's potentially a breach of your fiduciary duty, right? They're just kind of doing whatever the proxy, you know, uh, voting agencies tell them to do. Really? So when they vote their shares, they're just voting whatever the board recommends? It's whatever the, you know, the, the proxy vote, there's like a, a handful of proxy voting um, kind of companies out there that recommend whatever the vote is, the, uh -huh. the shareholder vote is. And, and, and typically these index funds just do whatever they recommend. And that's tip. That's not that's, always wow. the right thing. Wow! Wow! No, <laughs> that's super interesting. I didn't. I didn't even think about no. that. So you've got half of the assets owned by a, an entity that basically doesn't take the corporate governance or the 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 duties of a shareholder seriously. Yeah, and that's been you know they're trying to like they're trying to address that, but I think you know thus far it's been more you know marketing than than actual substance. So now how do you think this leads to the next financial calamity then? Well, I mean, if you, if you just kind of like think things through to the next, um, to kind of the next iteration of that, right? You're, you're, you have a market yeah. where, you know, there's been no real um, discrepancy in valuation between companies because it's largely driven by passive index flows. Um, 
you don't hold those companies to account, right? You're not, you're not, you know, holding them responsible for kind of doing the right thing. So there's going to be companies that are, you know, making the wrong decisions and nobody is, nobody's really paying attention. And then when things reverse and like we're seeing right now, and we haven't really seen it actually in fund flows and in, in, in kind of retail fund flows, we haven't seen, um, we haven't, we've, we've seen still a pretty healthy, uh, r- record of passive inflows into into stocks this right. year. Uh, we've seen a pullback in institutional um, stock flows, pretty pretty significant, pretty dramatic pullback. Uh, but when you do see that, um, and you know you've seen stocks go down, but but let me tell you, if if we see retail fund flows reverse, and they'll reverse if there's enough pain, um, that's mm-hmm. that's gonna that's gonna go that's gonna you know lead us the other in the other direction, right? That's gonna be indiscriminate selling. By the passive index funds because that's that's all their that's all their job is they're just passing along you know either they're buying the stock or they're selling the stock so as retail starts closing out their etf holdings then that money gets pulled out in the pro rata basis and all the holdings of the etf exactly it just goes the other way and so yeah and so if we, if we do have and it's not just retail i mean it's 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 broadly speaking right like i mean you know it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's broadly speaking you know, if there's a pullback from passive index in the passive index approach, which we think could happen because we think that, um, you know, we are in a different market regime than we have been for the last decade plus, then, you know, it, it could be very painful. And, and like I said, 20% down on S and P is not, that's not painful. Um, it could get a lot more painful. Oof. Man, that's a lot that we've covered in a short period of time. All right. Well, can we, you want to move on and start talking about some crypto? Uh, go ahead, Dan. Uh-huh. If you got some questions lined up. Well, not not uh, any specific questions, but just my general. Uh, do you think crypto has I- inherent value like a company does, like like shares in a company? It's a great question. Um, so broadly speaking, I think crypto is not any different than any other speculative asset class. And so, you know, kind of going into this very recent period of time where you had a lot of liquidity driven by both the monetary and fiscal governments um, into the system, effectively driving up asset price, prices. Um, it, it, you know, it typically, you know, the more dollars you have in the system, the higher on the speculative scale that those dollars go, they kind of flow into higher speculative assets. Crypto is probably on the highest end of spe- speculative assets, maybe similar to, you know, investing in art, as I, as I alluded to before. Um, with it, within crypto, though, um, I kind of, and this is my personal opinion, I view Bitcoin as something separate from kind of the rest of the crypto market, um, where I can see a value for Bitcoin. That's uh, not ascribed to the same way as to a company, but maybe more akin to a currency. And, um, and that's due to the fact that it's a fully decentralized, non-sovereign risk asset. And, and I think there's a value there, right? There's, um, you know, if you, if you're in crypto, you know the, the term, not your keys, not your coins, right? You can, <laughs> you, if you hold your coins on, you know, in cold storage in your own wallet, you know, unless somebody physically takes them from you, uh, you can't lose them. Now, the, so that's kind of the use case in my, in my view on Bitcoin. And I, I developed this view back in 2017 when I was talking to a business person from Venezuela and he and this is you know this is a guy he was like a grandfather and he was a successful businessman 
And he said to me, thank God for Bitcoin, because otherwise everything I've worked for my whole life would be gone because Venezuela, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, kind of devalued its currency, which meant, you know, people lost their wealth, basically. Um, and, um, and he was able to convert some of his Venezuelan currency to Bitcoin and, 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 and save some of that value. And so I think there's, 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 so that's where I think Bitcoin's value comes in. Mm-hmm. I think everything else, and I think it's still early and it's not even clear that Bitcoin, you know, is the, you know, if you were to refer to it as a global, you know, non-sovereign reserve currency, um, you know, it's not even clear that Bitcoin is it. It has the longest track record. It's never been hacked. And, you know, they've tried to shut it down in China like five times, it's still around from a fundamental perspective. It's still doing well price-wise. It moves around, obviously, in, in, in a drawdown right now. But, um, but that's, that's how I think about Bitcoin. I think Ethereum and some of the other kind of layer one networks are, you know, also interesting, but they think very early. Um, they, the use cases mm-hmm. need to be proven out. Um, and so do I think Dogecoin is worth anything? No, I think, I think the fact that, you know, Dogecoin does <laughs> $7 billion market cap is a problem and it'll eventually go away. But, um, <laughs> but I think there's something to Bitcoin. And so what we, I've been personally recommending to my friends and family since 2017 to put a small percentage, one to 3% of their net worth into just Bitcoin, maybe, you know, a, a, a mix of Bitcoin and Ethereum with Bitcoin being kind of the biggest piece of it. That's again, that's my personal recommendation to my, you know, to people I love and care about. Um, I think, you know, for clients, we've taken a, a similar but different approach and not using direct coin exposure, but things that have been developed in the market today that are good proxies for kind of the crypto market in general. But we view it as a, we still view it as a very speculative space. No, that, that's a, that's a very nuanced take. So, so you're, uh, you, you're more in line with, uh, viewing crypto as, as a, as an actual currency it not necessarily like a commodity like the senate bill is trying to make it happen so yes i I mean i think i think bitcoin itself and i mean gary gensler was on cnbc this morning talking about it you know he said you know he thinks rightfully so bitcoin has been kind of classified as a currency or a commodity which is you know currencies are currencies and commodities are kind of similar from that from that perspective and um and i think that's probably appropriate and I think that, you know, the, the, the secret to Bitcoin is, again, it's, it's the fact that there is value in being able to store, you know, value um, yourself without an intermediary, right? And, you know, uh, people say, well, that's, you know, that's great. But if you can't, like, use it to buy stuff, then, like, who cares? But um, there's still value there. And um, I think that what we saw recently with the protests in Canada, if you were following the truckers protesting Canada's COVID, um, uh, you know, rules, the, the government there issued the banks in order to, to, to freeze some of those protesters' bank accounts. And I think that was like a living, breathing use case for Bitcoin, right? Because it doesn't matter if you live in a democratic country you find yourself, uh, you know, maybe in a situation where, you know, you're, you're doing something that's opposed to, to the government, uh, they can confiscate your assets. And, uh, and so, um, right. you know, you're seeing it right now, uh, you know, maybe, 
maybe more fairly with, you know, Russian oligarchs, right? Uh, and the sanctions that were put on them. So, but, but that's, that's governments confiscating your assets because they're held by an intermediary and Bitcoin solves that problem. Well said. Well explained. Thank you. I like how you just managed to segue in right into uh, uh, Russia, <laughs> right at the tail end of the episode. Yeah. And uh, something that I've been holding back <laughs> and really wanted to ask you. Uh, we got permission from you beforehand, but yeah, you said uh, before we started talking that you grew up in Ukraine. I was wondering if you had any uh, uh, insights on, on what's actually going on over there right now. Yeah. No, thank you for asking. And, and, and I really, yeah, I, I don't mind talking about it. I was born in what is now the eastern part of Ukraine in, a, in, a, in the, largest, the second largest city in Ukraine called Kharkiv. Kharkiv right now is, my understanding, 60 to 70 percent destroyed. It was the not only the second largest city, it was also the educational capital of what was then the former Soviet Union. And, and, and now the and now Ukraine has the largest amount per capita universities, I think, in 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 Europe. And um so what's happening there is obviously it's very personal for me because that's where my family's from. Luckily, most of my family followed us to the United States in the late 80s, early 90s. My, uh, we do have some friends there. They've had to flee their homes and, and move to other parts of the country in the West that are, that are safer. It's, it's, it's tragic. Um, and I think that the, um, you know, when people used to ask me about, you know, being Ukrainian and, 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 and I should mention that part of Ukraine where I grew up, it's Russian speaking because it's so close. It's so close to the Russian border, yeah. what, what is now the Russian border, that you know I grew up speaking Russian. I speak Russian today. Um, I don't speak Ukrainian, but I identify as Ukrainian. And when when you would ask me or anybody else from that part of the world about whether or not you know is there any difference between you know having Ukraine have its own sovereign government or it being part of Russia or the you know former Soviet Union. I think most people would cynically tell you what difference does it make because you have you know, one corrupt state, you have another corrupt state, and so you're just living in one or the other, and who cares? Um, but the truth is that I think Zelensky, who came into power recently, is and obviously the current, the current um, prime minister, president, he, 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 he did come in with this you know, you know, different um, message of you know, freedom and, 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 um, you know, economic freedom and, you know, modernization of their, uh, economy and, you know, more of an inclusion into the European Union, which I think he's, you know, now desperately, desperately trying to achieve. And I think that's resonated mm -hmm. with people. And I think that, you know, people want that now. Um, and instead of that, they got, you know, Russia invading them, trying to take them and, and become part of the, you know, you know, just become what it was back in the Soviet Union. And so if we're being honest, I don't think anybody, even if like I was a huge Canadian fan and wanted Canada to own my town, if I identified as Canadian, I still wouldn't want them coming into my home and blowing it up in order to make that happen. No, it's, it's, um, you're, you're absolutely right. There are people in that part of the, the country that, that want Russia to you know, want to be part of Russia. And they kind of, still identify with the former Soviet Union and, and kind of what everything that it represented, which is crazy to me. But yes, I mean, Russia is not, they're not, they're not, you know, they, they, there was just a report today. They just bombed like a, like a mall with like a thousand people, like, you know, a thousand innocent people. They're, you know, they're committing war crimes, you know, every day. And, you know, we're kind of sitting here, you know, watching it from a distance, but it's, it's tragic what's going on. 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your, your insights. Really do appreciate that. I know it probably can't be very easy talking about something like that, even though you've been removed from it for a while. Uh, it still, still can't be easy. That definitely, definitely not, not a great situation. Just, you know, you got to hope for some sort of, you know, it doesn't seem likely, but some sort of resolution one way or another, you know, sooner rather than later. I will say, I think Zelensky's earned a lot of fans over the last year. He has, and, and I think he's done a great job. He, he did, I should, I should point out, like he wasn't a saint going into this. Like, you know, he has some, he has some, you know, affiliations no. with a, with a Russian oligarch with some, you know, definitely some, you know, there's some black marks there, but he has done a good job since the crisis. Like the, the one childhood friend that I personally stay in touch with who, who lives in Kiev that I have chatted with did not vote for Zelensky was not into him at all, but has become a huge mm-hmm. supporter since the war started because, you know, he just feels like yep. he's done such a good job uh, since the conflict started. Wow. That's, that's refreshing to hear. I'm not used to somebody being like, I didn't vote for him, but once they got in office and started doing this stuff, I, I can admit it was great. Right. <laughs> Most people don't want to ever change their minds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's oof, changing my mind. Ugh. Dan, how are we doing on time? I think. Oh, uh, well, we got about five more minutes if you want to stretch it. Otherwise, uh, we can we can wrap it up. We've covered a lot of topics. I think we should do we should let Cairo uh, uh, talk about where people can find yes. Centerfin if they want to learn more, where yes. they can follow him on social media. Yeah, I appreciate videos. that, guys. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way, and congrats on 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 the podcast. It's uh, I know it's a lot of work, and um, you know appreciate you guys having me on. So um, you know, again, Centerfin. Centerfin is really, you know, what we think is an alternative approach to kind of what's traditionally available for individuals. We think it's ever more so important today in, in potentially a very different uh, regime uh, than we've been living in for, for the recent past. And, um, and so, um, you know, we're happy to talk to people about that and why we think so and, and what we're doing about it. We are, you know, you can look us up at centerfin.co. I'm Kyrill, K-Y-R-I-L-L at centerfin.co. I'm also on, you know, we have all the social media uh, presences, but I'm also on Twitter personally, uh, Wall Street Hobbs, Wall, S-T-H-O-B-B-E-S, and uh, happy to engage with people and, you know, have a have a conversation. Hobbs as in the philosopher or Hobbs as in the tiger from Calvin and Hobbs? <laughs> as, in, as in the philosopher, yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, the other Hobbs is also a philosopher, I think, so. That's my favorite. That's yeah. my cat's named after. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Wall Street underscore Hobbs? Wall Street, uh, just Wall, Wall ST Hobbs. Oh, Hobbs. I'm trying to add you. So there you are. Okay. I am following you now. Awesome. I'll follow you back. We'll make sure that we have links for everything in the uh, episode description. So if you missed, uh, if you're not quick enough typing that out, we'll make sure that make it easy for you guys to click on those links. Also, we'll have links for the books that you mentioned too. I definitely want to check out some of those Market Wizard books. Yeah. When Genius Failed, it's got my eye. Yeah, that one sounds super interesting. And and I will I will chime in with another uh, book that if if you're interested in like personal investing and trading, so there's a book called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. I just wrote it. Oh yeah, <laughs> such a good book. Isn't it amazing? Uh huh. Great. It, everybody needs to read it. It's, it's amazing. Kyle, did, did you put him up to that? Because I haven't read the, the book yet. No, I have not. Uh huh. Uh huh. You you mailed him. You said make sure to. Rub salt in the wound. No, I got to get that book. I really do. I'll send you a copy, Dan. Dan, you want to take us home? This has been such a great time. Thank you again for coming on, Cairo. 
and thank you for putting together Centerfin. I've uh, been checking it out. Really great stuff over there. And folks, thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode. We unfortunately, you know, we always got to clo- close up shop eventually. But we will be coming back at you soon with another exciting episode. And until then, happy trades. Goodbye, everybody. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.